Greetings, listeners and listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to what is going on regionally, nationally, and internationally. We've been talking to several authors about their books that are going to be taking place at the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. And on Tuesday, November 8th at 1 o'clock p.m., Jen Maxfield, who's an Emmy Award-winning reporter and anchor at NBC New York and adjunct professor at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. She's a speaker, media trainer, and the author of the book we're going to discuss more after the break, A Reporter Returns to 10 Unforgettable News Stories. And Jen, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to speak with you. Now, 10 stories, you probably, over the course of your career, which I think spans 22 years, you've probably done thousands and thousands of stories. How did you boil it down to these 10? They must have really stuck out to you. You're absolutely right. I've been a TV news reporter for more than two decades, and I estimate I've interviewed more than 10,000 people over that time. And 10 people I returned to in this book were the ones that I could never forget the people who I kept thinking about and the people I really felt I I formed a connection with in telling their story. And really, the idea for the book was generated from my own curiosity about whatever happened to the people who I met on assignment. And so it was great to be able to go back out and, and find them and do some more research on their story. So these stories may have happened 20 years ago or two years ago or a couple months ago. And this, when you talk about a connection, about telling their story, what makes the difference between getting that connection of why these appeared here and others that didn't connect with you? Sure. Look, some of, I, I mentioned the 10,000 interview figure, and some of those interviews might have been something like, how are you faring in the snowstorm? Or what do you think of the new red light camera near your house? So not every story has that emotional component to it. Look, a lot of the stories we are doing, we're with people on the best days of their lives, the worst days of their lives, the most chaotic days of their lives. And those are the ones that tend to stick with me more because not only am I telling other people's stories, but really acknowledge in this book, and I think I thought a lot more about it in writing the book, of how much trust people put in me to tell their stories and how much we're asking of people when we go knock on their doors or approach them at a breaking news scene, when we ask them to share their stories with us. Now, were there some surprises in you revisiting with some of these people? Absolutely. I wasn't even sure that some of the people would still be alive, frankly. And as you're probably familiar, the pace of day of air local TV news reporting is we pitch stories in the morning, we are assigned something, We go out with the photographer in the live van and we go out and we interview people and I write the story. The photographer edits it. We do the live shot that evening and nine times out of 10, that's it. We're not returning to the story the next day. We work on it for one day and the next day the cycle begins anew. Because it's so rare for us to follow up on stories weeks or months or years after, there were many cases where I really didn't know what to expect. And frankly, I didn't know what to expect even when approaching people for the book. Obviously, the people I interviewed for the book had said yes to me initially, 
and I had covered their stories and interviewed them on the day of the actual news event. But whether or not they wanted to trust me now a second time for this larger project was, I thought, a, an open question. And I wasn't sure if everybody viewed being in the public and their stories being covered on the news as a positive thing. And I, I was prepared in some of these stories to make an apology to people. So that was also part of what was interesting just about tracking down people for the book and doing the research behind these stories on what had happened since our live truck pulled away from the scene. So tease us a little bit and listeners and those who would want to get the book about some of these stories. And some of them are very heartbreaking. Just give us I have in front of me a young man who lost both of his legs in a ferry crash, and you have mm. some other things going on. Let people know exactly what they would be reading. Absolutely. You're talking about Paul Esposito, who was a young man, 24-year-old waiter, and had been working at a restaurant in New York City and was commuting home to Staten Island on the Staten Island Ferry, which in New York City is free. And so thousands of commuters use this way to commute between Lower Manhattan and Staten Island every day. And Paul had taken the ferry countless times. He'd gotten up on the boat and was walking back to his seat when it turns out the pilot of the ferry had taken some pain medication and passed out at the controls. So this enormous boat hurtling full speed into a concrete maintenance pier. And Paul tragically lost both his legs in that crash. And so you can imagine what that injury was like and how serious it looked. And thankfully for him, there was a nurse who was on board visiting from the United Kingdom there as a tourist. And he saved his life. Paul Esposito is alive today because of Carrie Griffith. Wow. And not only did she render the first aid, but then when the paramedic finally came on the ferry, he demanded that they take Paul to the hospital first. And they took one look at him and didn't think he had a chance of surviving. And they initially told her, we're not taking him. We need to take people who have a chance of surviving. Oh. She really fought for him. And just that story and the relationship between them and her heroics and then how his life is going today. He's living in Florida. And, you know, what the outcome of it was for her. That chapter was just unbelievable to go back to. And certainly that event, the Staten Island ferry crash in which 11 people were killed and dozens like Paul were injured. You know, it's a big, big story that people remember, but that they probably haven't heard about in some time. And the other thing I wanted to just mention is some of these stories, certainly like Paul's, are, were really traumatic when they happened. But I do think that the upshot of the book and the takeaway for readers is that, yes, something happened to somebody and we all go through adversity, but Look at how the people in this book have picked themselves up and have shown so much resilience and have really triumphed over these circumstances they found themselves in. And for me as a writer and as a journalist, that was the joy of writing this book was really understanding as tough as the situations were that people found themselves in, how beautifully they've really picked themselves up since I saw them. And that's amazing. And I have a great deal of respect for journalists because they many times are delivering negative or bad news or traumatic kinds of things. And my question really deals with how do you, as a journalist, and when you're on site, deal with some of the trauma and disaster that you covered or have covered? Where does your resilience come from? How do you deal with the things that you see and that you have to report? Because it can be very horrific. Yeah, it's true. And 
look, I, my emotion pale in comparison to the people I'm covering, but having done the job for 22 years, we have been adjacent to people for so many days where they're experiencing heartache. And I am changed. I can't, I'm not a news robot. So I'm with people and I feel for them and I feel empathy for them. And I think that the day that I don't feel that empathy is the day that I should retire because I think that really informs my storytelling and how I share these stories with the community. On the other hand, I do have a professional obligation here, and that is get the story out to the community. And if I'm hysterically crying about something, that's making me the center of the story, and that's not what I want to do. So I have had through the years, certainly I have ways that I might need to take a little break at work, whether it's taking a walk outside or listening to a podcast or watching some funny clip on YouTube from SNL that I missed last weekend. Just things that I might do to take my mind off it for some period of time. And the other thing that I think is really helpful over the years is when I get home from work, I have three children and my husband and I'm home with my family. I do really prioritize being present for my family. So my work phone goes on the charger and I'm not obsessively checking in about the stories. And I think having that balance in my life has been really important. And that is, I, that's a great comment. And I yeah. really respect and appreciate what you just said. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if people really realize and understand that a reporter such as Jen or anyone that's in that media, that's right there with breaking news, like the shuttle exploding or someone being shot and killed or whatever, it does affect the reporter and how they react to it. I know it, some of the events, my 20, 30 years of, of being in the broadcast industry, when a really large events have come through and I've had to be on the air reporting some of these events, it does disturb me. It, it affects me after I get off the air and I go on. So I can certainly appreciate a Jen wanting to just take a moment, step back, regroup, and then go back. And I think it's great, Jen, that when you get home, like you, you put the, put it on the charger and you're not just being a news junkie and checking out. CNN and every news outlet that you can just make sure you're on top of everything. So I think that's important. I think that word balance, I think is a great word. I think that fits it perfectly. We have to have, I'm just talking from my experiences to be a good reporter, someone that, you know, what's happening in life with our public, you have to have a balance in your life. So kind of a normal person and seeing it through that kind of a lens. So that's, I applaud you for all that, Jen. Yeah, oh, I, thank you. And I agree with you. I think you have to have a life outside of the job. Mm -hmm. Not only do I, am I very engaged in my community and I know a lot of people, I'm certainly privy to a lot of information that people tell me that eventually could one day be part of a news story. I, I just think from a larger standpoint, my role as a mom and a wife and a sister and a daughter, that really does make me a better reporter in my mind, just having those connections with the people in my life. And I think actually writing the book was very healing in a way because when we're doing these stories, and there's that great quote that says, news is the first rough draft of history. We don't really know the of what's going to happen. We're just reporting what we know that day. And we're giving the most accurate version of events that we can do in that moment. But what's been amazing in writing the book is not only to see how people have triumphed over adversity, but there's been real change that has come out of some of these stories. I, I did a story about a school bus that was on its way to a field trip. 
And the driver made a terrible choice to try to make a U-turn in the middle of the highway. And there were 46 people on board. Every adult and every child was injured. And one teacher and one child was killed. It was mm. awful. It was the Paramus, New Jersey school bus crash. It's a tragic situation with a bus full of fifth graders. But one of the surviving children wound up speaking at the state capitol in Trenton, wound up speaking on the floor of at age 11. And she was advocating for some safety regulations that would have prevented this crash. And they passed it. And now kids around the whole country are safer because of this child. And I just think that sort of thing is remarkable, too, when we have the benefit of hindsight to say, okay, this tragedy happened, this terrible thing happened, but look at what emerged from real change from that story. The book reminds me a little bit of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story that many times you don't get a chance to hear. And I greatly appreciate that. How has the reporting of the news or journalism changed from your perspective? And I know you can also answer this as an adjunct professor. Yes, a lot has changed since 2022, uh, since 2000 when I started and in the last 22 years. And by the way, I think it's so funny you brought up Paul Harvey because I initially wanted to call my book the rest of the story, but the publisher said, no, that's already taken. (laughs) That's too affiliated with Paul Harvey. So you're absolutely right. I do love that saying, the rest of the story. But as far as how news has changed, everything we do, logistics of it has changed so much. When I started in Binghamton, New York, at the ABC station there, News Channel 34 in the year 2000, we had a those plastic milk carton, milk crate. Yes. We had a box full of maps in every live truck. And that's how we would figure out where to go. There was no GPS yet. We used to carry around phone books and make phone huh. calls and things like that. And even something like how often we have surveillance video now. We didn't used to have to look around for security cameras and wonder if someone would share the video with us. Now that's happening all the time. And just in general, of course, the advent of social media and how people are consuming the news that we're reporting. Some people are watching it on television, of course, but we also know that people are streaming it. They're clicking in through stories on Twitter and Facebook. And that's fine. We want to meet people where they are and just make sure they're getting the information that they need. And look, surveys have shown over and over that people really do trust and value their local news reporters, the journalists who are covering important issues in their community. That's really what I'm focused on is continuing to get those stories on the air that that people need to know to be informed. You you gave some answers to the question. My final question here, some advice for an aspiring journalist, maybe a high school student who's writing for their school newspaper, someone who is writing for the university paper and is in journalism school. If you had two or three key points to make to them, what would they be? Your elevator points to that. First off, I'm thrilled if they're writing for their high school or college newspaper, because that's exactly how I got started with the Echo newspaper of Tenafly High School. So that's great. I would tell them to be an authentic storyteller and not try to imitate something they've seen before, but really try to make their own way. And I would tell them to really reflect on humanism in journalism and that we are part of a larger community. We are one person talking to another. And obviously the accuracy of the story is important, but just to value that connection that we have with the people we're reporting on. And finally, just the value of writing in general. I think sometimes people, somebody must just hand me a script on the news and I read it, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I write my own stories every day at work 
I wrote the book myself. And if you're a student, I think really crafting your writing skills is critical. Folks, the book is called More After the Break. A reporter returns to 10 unforgettable news stories. And it's by Jen Maxfield. She's an Emmy Award winning reporter. She will be talking about this book at the Jewish Book Festival in St. Louis on Tuesday, November the 8th at 1 p.m. Folks, you want to get tickets to that event. Jen, what a great book and really enjoy reading. I'm not quite through yet. And thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me on. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.